Okay, we're good. All right, so tonight um, we're in Colossians 4, the whole chapter. Uh, And so uh, if you were to ask me about my quiet time in the last year or two, it it would kind of go something like this. Um, I typically get up, make my coffee, and continue in the Bible where I left off in the morning before, and then pray. I've been reading through the Bible um, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and I try to practice this every morning, but I do miss some here and there. I didn't always read my Bible and pray regularly. That might surprise some of you. Some of you, probably not. Um, But there was a time in my life, even a part of my life at Southeastern, which I've only been at two and a half years, where I I didn't really read my Bible or pray very regularly. I had done it, but not often. Um, If someone were to ask me my freshman year, you know, do you read your Bible? I might throw in one of these. Uh, Not as often as I should. And maybe the same with prayer. Do you you pray? Well, I I, I should pray more. I know I need to pray, but I, I don't. And... I knew that reading my Bible and prayer was something that was important in the Christian life, and I practiced it every now and again, but I knew the answers in the lingo, but I just I didn't understand why. It never clicked with me while I was reading my Bible until the spring of my freshman year at Southeastern. And that was actually right when I started coming to Poplar Spring. Some random speaker named David Platt was coming to chapel, and my roommate Hunter insisted that I go. I'd never heard of him. I'd never listened to him, but I said, okay, I'll go. So Dr. Platt preached from Luke 11, 1 through 13, with a sermon titled, The Characteristics of God. He started the sermon asking the question, how is your heart for the Lord right now? I remember thinking, not that good, I guess. He goes on to ask, do you love him? I remember thinking, I think so. I'm a Christian. And he said, is your time long with him? And I can remember thinking, no, it's not. Ten minutes, maybe before I went out of the door. Like, I'd sleep until 10 and go to class at 10.30. I, I I didn't really have a long time with him. I remember getting almost sad thinking about these questions he was asking. He went on to tell about how the disciples asked him how to pray, and and, then Jesus how to pray, and then he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, and then tells the parable of a man going uh, to get food at midnight from his friend. He made the point that we were to approach God in prayer the way that the man approached his friend for uh, for food, with this sort of impudence. And I I remember thinking throughout the whole sermon, "I, I, I I don't do this. I don't approach God like this. This seems so simple, yet I don't do it. I remember one thing that really stuck with me throughout the whole sermon. He said, just go into your room, close the door, approach the Father. There's reward waiting for you. At that moment, I I remember it all clicked. I need to read my Bible. Prayer is actually talking to God. I need to read my Bible every day because that's how God communicates to me. That's how he talks to me. And and it's just such, it was such a simple thing, such a simple sermon. And the Lord used that, that seemingly simple sermon to remind me of why I read my Bible, which then changed my life. He used that sermon to open my eyes to the simplicity of just being with God. Just sitting in silence, reading his word and thinking about him. Dr. Platt reminded me of the characteristics of God. How he was all that we need. He's approachable. He's all-knowing and so much more. The sermon wasn't anything groundbreaking necessarily. He didn't answer the problem of evil. And I'm sure, being Southeastern Seminary, it was kind of ho-hum for some of the people in the room. It was a simple sermon, but it, it changed me. It brought about a massive change in me. And that same simplicity that I saw in Luke 11, 1 through 13, that same simplicity is the same simplicity I see here in Colossians 4. And what I mean by that is Paul's final charges to the church at Colossae, they aren't complicated or lofty. Paul isn't asking the church to give up their life and go overseas to the deepest and most dangerous parts of the world in this text. In chapter 1, we saw that 
kind of who, who Christ is. And then chapter 2, that, that we're made alive in Christ. And then chapter 3, that kind of the specifics of how to put on that new self, that saved self. And, and so he seems to be, Paul seems to be taking what this church at Colossae might have already known as a common practice. Maybe what we have, what I would call autopilot, just kind of the things that we do every day and what I'm going to call the characteristics of a believer. So Paul seems to be taking those things and, and re-emphasizing and reminding the importance, the church of the importance of those characteristics at the beginning of, of chapter 4 here. And so my plan tonight, my goal, is, is to, to just read through Colossians 4. And after reading the chapter, I, I want to draw out maybe four characteristics of a believer in the text. I want to dig into maybe each characteristic and uh, draw out some implications we see from the text. And then close with some application for our lives as believers in 2018. So... I'm going to give you these four characteristics ahead of time so you know exactly where I'm going and maybe you can look through and, 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 and read for them while we're reading. Um, so these four characteristics, um, prayer, walking in wisdom, salty speech, and we'll get to what that means later, and intentionality. So those are the four characteristics of a believer that I see, not the only, but four characteristics it seems like Paul is bringing out in the beginning of, of, of chapter four is prayer, walking in wisdom, salty speech, and intentionality. Um, So let's pray before we get into this. God, there's nothing I could do tonight to bring out the Spirit, to to make anything happen. God, is all by you, for you. So I pray, God, that you would come and do a work that only you could do um, tonight, God, that your word won't return void. And so, God, I pray that um, you would just work in the hearts and minds of people here, God, that you would open eyes, soften hearts, God, and And even just remind me how it's convicted me in this um, sermon. Just these characteristics. God, we pray. We we pray. We we need you, God. This is about you. Um, Help this point us all to you tonight, God, in worship. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of this chapter, we have Paul uh, kind of giving some final instructions to the believers of the Church of Colossae. We've seen Paul talk about who Christ is, what a believer looks like, putting on that new self, and then maybe the specifics of, of doing that. Now, in verses 2 through 6, Paul gives his last words of encouragement and charges to the church at Colossae. We see in verse 2 that Paul charges them to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. Um, that's, and that's verse, verse 2. And I, I think, well, I'm not doing verse 1. Jesse took it from me last night. If you weren't here, he still has it. Um, but it, it's, it was just part of, of chapter 3, and so I'm starting at verse 2. Um, and so, real... Um, well, read verse 2, so continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So I think this first characteristic, this prayer, is maybe a more inward characteristic. And so as we're going through this first point, just kind of think inwardly, like, do I pray like Paul is describing in this first verse? Um, and maybe just think inward about it towards yourself. And so let, let's get into this prayer. So I, I want to make sure that we don't look past the weight of Paul ending the book of Colossians with a charge to simply pray. And don't worry, Paul gets into his prayer request soon. Um, But for now, just know that Paul is telling the church, continue steadfastly in prayer. This isn't Paul coming to them and saying, hey, y'all, don't forget to say your bedtime prayers. He's not reminding them to pray uh, for food. But he's in the ESV, he's he's using the word steadfastly to describe how they should pray. But I kind of like the way some other translations say it. So if you're in the CSB, um, it says devote yourself to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. The New King James says continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And don't you love those words, earnestly, vigilant? I mean, it's just, they're, they're just good words. And in Webster's dictionary, it actually defines vigilant 
as keeping careful watch for possible danger or difficulties. The definition for being earnest is resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. And I, I think out of all the translations we have, besides the Greek, obviously, that the, the New King James hits the nail on the head with what Paul is trying to convey. Namely, that you, prayer actually works. You need to pray. Prayer is, is powerful. Like, I imagine if Paul, if he just wanted to tell the Colossians, the um, Colossians to pray and be thankful, he might, he might have said something along the lines of pray and be thankful. Something simple like that. Or maybe if he lived in Bun, he'd say, hey, keep praying, y'all. But here's my question. Why, why did Paul choose to throw these words earnestly and vigilant? Or just these two words to describe the prayer. Like, he could have just said, hey, pray, be thankful. Why did he choose to throw those two words in there? And so I think that Paul maybe understood the temptation that we face as a church of believers. Is that to wake up, dive headfirst into our morning cup of coffee, to get started with our day without once confessing dependency on God. Paul knows the human tendency to rely on self rather than on God. And we're no exception to that. How many mornings just this week has it been easier to go ahead and get started with your day and get it done rather than run to the Lord in prayer first thing? And I think another reason Paul, Paul tells us to be earnest and vigilant in prayer is because of the nature of what prayer actually is. Have you ever sat back and wondered, like, what is prayer actually doing? I know I've asked myself that plenty of times. And at its simplest form, it seems that prayer can be defined as communicating with our Heavenly Father, coming before God with request and also thanksgiving, understanding that He is the only one who, who has what we need for eternal life. And not only for eternal life, He also hears our, our day-to-day needs. We can pray for, for the salvation of our friends for cancers. We can also pray about grades and time management. The, Lord's here, the Lord hears them all. And so when Paul says, continue steadfastly, when he says devote yourself to prayer, when he tells us to be earnest and vigilant, I think that he's making the point that we need to devote ourselves to talking to God every day about the big and the small things. We need to keep doing it. He's not just saying to do it one time. He's saying keep going. Do it. Do it with vigilance. And so and he's, he's telling us create a dependency on him by the way we approach him. Confess to him constantly throughout the day. Like, I need you for my next meal. My lungs don't have breath unless you say they have breath. Like if God says you're not getting your last meal, you're not getting it. It's not going to happen. And, and so even the last part of that verse, be watchful and being watchful in Thanksgiving. Not to be too cliche here, but the fact that you can pray, that you have breath in your lungs and food in your body, the fact that you're alive should automatically bring out a, a state of Thanksgiving in your prayers. Paul Foster um, says in his commentary on Colossians, uh, he makes a note that, because the thankful isn't specific to what we should be thankful for, like it doesn't tell us what to, he says that that thanksgiving in the passage is, is a response to believers, a response believers offer to God in consideration of the new life they've freely experienced in Christ. So that thankfulness, while we should be uh, thankful in our prayers, it, he's saying that thankfulness is actually a response to their salvation, is how he sees it. And we see this from Paul early in Colossians. It's not just that commentary. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 2.6-7, therefore, as you, have, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so we need to pray. We, we, need, we, we come to God knowing he has all that we need. And we need to be watchful in it with thanksgiving, that is prompted by God qualifying us for the new life we have received. He's established us, and we are rooted and built up in him. I mean, how often do we go about our days in a prayerless state of self-reliance? I think we need to analyze ourselves. 
Think about your life just this week. Paul knows that you and I, like the people at the Church of Colossae, are prone to try and do it our own way. We're quick to say we need God with our mouths while our actions say something different. Maybe that we, we can do it ourselves. Uh, Paul, Paul uses these words of emphasis to remind us that prayer is important. And when, I, when I say prayer is important, I don't necessarily mean that you can't physically survive without it. There's plenty of people who do that, many of whom who don't know their creator. But we're not trying to mimic and replicate that lifestyle. As Christians, we need to be marked by prayer. Prayer is a God-given guard against pride that says we can do it on our own. And Paul is telling the Colossian church, keep doing it. So continue earnestly in prayer, palpable spring, and be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Um, Let's keep reading, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So this next kind of subsection it would be pray missionally. So I had prayer, and it seems that Paul is praying missionally here. He first charges the, the church at Colossae in, in verse uh, 2, like we just saw, that, um, to, to prayer. And now it seems like he's asking them that they would actually pray missionally for him. If, so at the same time, he says, Paul says, Pray also for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul needs the church to band together as a body of believers and ask God to open the door to share the gospel. He understands that he can and needs to try and try to share the gospel with these people, but he also understands that his father hears his requests. I mean, do we pray like that? Like, God, give my spouse the opportunity to share the gospel today. I mean, Paul is asking the church, pray for me to, to, to have opportunities and boldness to share the gospel. Like, do we pray like that? If you have kids, God, I pray that my, my, my child would have the opportunity and boldness to share their faith today. Like, our mission as the church is clear. I'm going to paraphrase for time's sake, but Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15 through 18. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 45 through 49. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Acts 1, 8. Matt just preached on this a few weeks ago. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. If, then, our mission is so clear in Scripture, shouldn't we be praying missionally? Shouldn't we be praying every day for our sisters and brothers in Christ to have opportunities to share the gospel? I think so. I think we see in Colossians, I think we see that, that here in Colossians. And notice, too, the way Paul asks for things to happen, right? Nothing in what Paul's saying is telling me that he can do it on his own. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So first we see that he's telling people, he's telling people the gospel, which is also referred to as a mystery, is how he refers to it as a mystery. So he's telling people something that he really can't be understood. That's what a mystery is. And we'll get more into that in a bit. And then that second part, on account of which I'm in prison. So he's already in jail for doing the thing that he wants to keep doing, right? He's 0-2. He's got a bad track record right now. And so he's 0-2 on reasons he should be doing what he's doing. But it's the other part of verse 3 that makes his request so so groundbreaking, right? Look at verse 3 again. And at the same time, pray for us also that God may open the door for the word. Paul tells the Colossian church, hey, and while y'all are praying for me, like he asked them to pray in the beginning of verse 2. Pray, pray for me. I, I want to share the gospel in this prison, uh, by the way, which is why I'm in prison. I want to tell these guards about Jesus Christ and how he's saved me and he can save them too. I'm not very charming. I'm weak. I'll cower down. 
And I need you to pray for me so that God would open the eyes of the guards because I can't do that. That's why he calls the gospel a mystery. And this isn't the only, thing, only place in the Bible we see that. Matthew 13, 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 3, 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Revelation 10, 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. It's crucial to understand why Paul uses this language here. And think about it this way. If a mystery is something that is difficult or impossible to understand, how would you come into the knowledge of such a thing? I mean, it's a mystery, right? Playing the guitar is a mystery to me. I can't make that thing sound good if I tried. But we have Matt and we have Michael. And maybe some others who can play the guitar, who can teach me, right? That I can make it function properly, but only with the guidance of somebody who knows how to actually work it. Similarly, Paul knows he can't do any of the saving work, and God is the only one who is able to do it. Praying missionally, for Paul, praying missionally for Paul wasn't him asking the church to send support, even though that is a good thing to do. Paul understood that no matter who came to him, no matter how many programs were started, no, how many, no matter how many wells were dug, not one soul in that prison could come to understand and respond to the gospel apart from God's sovereign intervention in their life. It just can't happen. It's not possible. And you, you see Paul... Paul needs prayer for boldness. He needs prayer for safety. Paul needs prayer for calmness. He needs prayer for a lot of things, but the one thing he needs to proclaim the word is the word itself. Paul needs God to come in the Holy Spirit and open the door that he, Paul, doesn't have the key to. So we need to, like Paul, understand that there's nothing we could do to change the hearts and minds of those around us. When you get nervous to go share the gospel with your coworkers, maybe your friends at school, Whoever, just know that it is only by God's intervention in their lives that they'll be changed. So, so pray missionally for those people prior to and at the time of sharing the gospel with them. When we go to God and we ask him to come and do a work that only he could do. And, I mean, if you're in a small group or D group, like, pray for those people weekly, daily. God, open the door to share the gospel in their life and give them boldness. Like, they need that. So praying and, and, and praying missionally which we've looked at, seem to be more inward characteristics, maybe more inward, and so, whereas the next three, they're, they're more outward. So it seems like we're, here we're going to switch our focus maybe from the more personal to the, and private to maybe some more outward characteristics. Um, and, I, and I need to clarify before I start, I didn't make up these points. Um, John Piper made these points up in a um, sermon he had on this text, but they, just, they were so good. Now studying through, and, and nothing else really made sense after I heard it. Um, and so these are his the words are all mine, so this is my footnote. Just know that. So we're going um, to go ahead and read verse 5 and 6. So read with me. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, uh, how you ought to answer each person. So Paul seems to be transitioning now to the Colossians' everyday life outside of prayer. Now he, seems, uh, he goes from telling them to pray and asking them to pray missionally to now giving them what seems to be instructions on how we as believers should maximize our time with unbelievers. So in verses 5 and 6, I think we see three more characteristics. I've given you the four. The last three seem to be in these um, verses 5 and 6 and 7 through the rest. Um, so these being more outward, of course. So we, have, we had prayer, and now we're at walk in wisdom, have salty speech, and give individual attention. So to walk in wisdom. I think the best way to understand what Paul means by walking in wisdom I think we, we need to understand what wisdom is and why we need it. 
John Piper says that wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. That's the Bible. The Bible won't always have the answers to every situation, every situation you face today, but what it does offer is wisdom. Webster's Dictionary says that wisdom is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment, the quality of being wise. I like Piper's definition. It's uh, more towards the Bible. And so we'll, we'll work with that one for now. He says, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. So why do, we, why do we need wisdom? We know what it is. Why do we need it? Well, the Bible doesn't have answers to everything you face in life. Scripture isn't going to have directions on if you should attend certain weddings or not others. Um, it won't have specific directions on what college to go to or, or big decisions in life. That's the point of wisdom. When we can't find that direct answer in the Bible, we need to use the information from it and prayerful consideration through it to then figure out how to make the decision that would best glorify God. And that's the, that's the goal, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all unto the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, we looked at this last night with Jesse. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So... We need wisdom to, number one, get answers to life situations that aren't found in the Bible. And number two, to best glorify God with those actions. Now, we need to know, now, or now that we know what wisdom is, and we know why we need it, we can now kind of seek to understand what Paul means by walking wisdom. So if you'll hold your place here and just turn with me to chapter one, just a, a, two pages over, I think we can get into Paul's head a little bit in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. I think we can kind of see what he means um, when he's reminding the Colossian church at the end to, to walk in wisdom. So chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 9, uh, if you all read with me. And so from the day that we heard, hearing about the Colossians' love for Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk as a manner Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully and pleasing to him. And this is where Paul begins to list some of the qualities of walking in wisdom. So, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I think this is what Paul is referring to in chapter 4, verse 5, when he says to walk in wisdom. And while I could spend another easily another hour or two exhausting the list of points that he makes here and maybe getting some parallel scriptures on each one. I'll stick to a summary. So Paul says, bear fruit in every good work. Increase in your knowledge of God. Don't, don't be satisfied where you are knowing about God. Like keep pushing forward. Know him more. Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Don't forget to give him thanks because, well, he's the one who qualified you for salvation by his son's death, burial, and resurrection. You didn't do that. He did. I mean, so give thanks to him for that. And notice, too, that Paul says, by doing this, you will know the will of the Lord. That's the last part of verse 9. And you will be walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So when Paul tells us to walk in wisdom, back in, in, in chapter 4, I think that he's, he's not suggesting that we walk according to our own wisdom and the things that we know. What I think he's saying is that we need to walk in a manner that is dependent on the Lord, worthy of the Lord, and then walk in such a way that your actions reflect those first two things to unbelievers around you. Say that again. We, we, to walk dependent on the Lord, worthy of the Lord, and then in such a way that by doing those first two things, they are shown to others around you. We talked about this last night with Jesse. 
that, that whether in word or deed or whatever you do, and he, he applied it to the workplace, that, that you would, your actions as a Christian would then reflect out to others around you. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The way you walk should be different and distinct than those around you, those unbelievers around you. That's not the only thing Paul says that should be different about us, though, um, towards outsiders. Look at verse 6. We'll read verse 6 together. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. We'll stop there. So this is the next um, salty speech. So Paul Foster has a, a point on this in his commentary on Colossians, and he makes an interesting observation that the structure of let your speech always be gracious he says that the, the literal translation from Greek to English here is, let your speech, always with grace, be salty. The point Foster gets at here is that the gracious is not how Paul is saying your speech it should be, though that is a good thing. You should have gracious speech. But rather, your speech should be marked by the grace that you have received, namely Jesus Christ. So Foster says that the Colossians' speech should reflect the grace that they have received. This creates a pretty significant difference, I think, the ASV, the KJV, the NASB, and the NIV all have some similar translations. Um, it, it sounds like, let your speech always be with grace. So our speech, our communication towards outsiders should always be marked by and filled with the grace of Jesus Christ. People should be able to look at the speech of a believer and mirror as a mirror of Christ's love that he first showed us. Like last summer, Adam approached me and asked if I would do a devotional of sorts for the, for the kids, um, for the teens. And uh, I think they were doing a bun cleanup day, and I think they shared the gospel some. Anyways, this was my first teaching opportunity. And so he kind of gave me free reign on what to teach, just that it would be uh, about being a light to your community. So after praying and researching, I, f- I figured I'd teach Matthew, 3, thir- or Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. Now, this is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. Or gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Matt Chandler, uh, pastor at the Village Church in Texas, he, he says about this passage in his sermon um, on Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he says that while he could go on into the specifics of how salt was used in the Old and New Testament, that all the ways a preservative kind of lines up with like being a believer and how you should be as a Christian, he thinks that Jesus is actually just simply saying, if salt isn't salty, it's not salt. Salt is salty. It's what defines it. It's what makes it what it is. And so I think that Paul, uh, in verse 6 here, means that your speech as a Christian should be distinctly different than the speech of the world. That the way you walk and, and the way you walk or the way you talk and the way you walk at work and at school should be marked by and filled with the grace of Jesus Christ. You should stick out like a sore thumb to people in such a way that Jesus, that shows them Jesus, like we talked about earlier. And I'll, I'll touch briefly on this last, last half of the verse. And Paul says, "Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt." And this is the last half of um, the verse, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, Paul Foster in his commentary on that says, The advice given here is not to withdraw and hence become a ghettoized community. Instead, they were to follow the apostolic model of Paul as one who is not socially bound but physically chained. 
he continued to seek God given opportunities for proclaiming the mystery of Christ. Similarly, the Colossians that are follow the same pattern of behavior, rather than being rebarbative, that was a big word, I had to Google it when I read it, unattractive or objectionable, they are to rely on the grace of God to speak, and, uh, to speak a distinctive message to those around them. The Colossians are being told to have that salty speech, that speech that is filled with Christ and different than the world's speech. And using it, they should know how to answer each person. It literally means each one. So not answering everyone, generically, but that they're to answer each individual person um, knowing how to answer, they're, they're to be knowing how to answer each person and tell them about the grace of Jesus Christ. And this will be my last point before we draw out some application to close. So if you'll read with me verses 7 through the end. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They'll tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, uh, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brother, brothers at Laodicea and to, and, uh, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read, to the, read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also, see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So, in verses 7 through 18 of the text, I'm going to kind of do a broad sweep in closing. Paul is pointing, to the, pointing the reader to the people that are simply a part of the church. They're faithful to the mission of the church, and Paul is able to point to them as, as such people. We see a list of names that I have a hard time pronouncing, so bear with me. Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. All these people, Paul is able to, to give a good report of their character, which takes me to my first point of application for tonight, and then we'll close. Can you be pointed to as somebody with a reputable character within the church? Of course, that doesn't mean that you are free of sin by any means, um, but, but could someone say of you, like Paul says of Epaphras in verse 13, for I bear, I bear him witness, I'll take his witness on, on me, that he or she has worked hard for you and for those at Poplar Spring. Could he say something like that about you? Point number two, continue steadfastly in prayer, church. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's what I think is a mark of a believer in this passage. I mean, do, do you pray like Paul tells the Colossian church to pray? Do you, do you commune long with God? Have you ever thought about it like that? Like, I encourage you, if your time isn't long with God, and this is totally personal to me. I don't think it's in, really in the text here, but if, if your time isn't long with the Lord, like go home, go to your closet, drive in your car like I do. Like whatever you have to do, no noise, no distractions, get in the room, shut the door, seek the Father. There's reward waiting. 
like Dr. Platt said. Um, so make your time long with him. Be steadfast in your prayers. Do it a lot. You know, Paul isn't just saying, uh, pray once steadfastly. You know, like keep doing it. And, and with that, pray missionally. And we saw this in the first part of uh, verse 3, that I, I think we need to pray missionally. I think that maybe if, if you're married, pray for your spouse regularly. Like, God, give them opportunities to share the gospel today, even if they're not confident in it. Pray, pray to the Lord, just God, give them boldness, give them clarity, give them understanding, help them to see these people that are put in their way every day that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, and, and we also have our, our partners in Uganda, Baltimore, Malaysia. Pray for them. Pray that the gospel would go far from their place by, by their tongues, that they would, they would be bold to share the gospel in their own community, that they would have opportunities. So that's, that's one. So, so can you be someone with a reputable character? Can someone point to you? Continue steadfast in prayer. And then third, are, are you walking in wisdom in such a way that shows Christ to those around you? When the rule book runs out, as Piper says, can you continue to make God-glorifying decisions? I'm sure there's at least 10 things each of y'all are going through right now that are not in the Bible. Like, at least 10 things that are not in the Bible. Like, analyze your life, and maybe there's some areas that you haven't surrendered over to doing under the Lord. Maybe there's some ways that you're not walking in wisdom that you think, I got this. I, I've done this for years. I know how to do this, but, but, but it's, not, it's not like that here. He says, walk in wisdom. Seek, seek the counsel of the scriptures. And we talked about this last night. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything into the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. So walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Um, and, and similarly, how, how you talk is should be distinctively different than that of an unbeliever. I mean, think about your life. Like, is the way you talk distinctly different from those around you in the everyday world that we are in? We talked about this last night. I have to steal some application from Jesse because he stole verse 1. So does, does how you act on a daily basis in the workplace, driving, driving, <laughs> I have an issue with it, does that tell those around you that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or does it make them think, oh, he's just like me? He's of the world. Your speech should always carry the grace of Jesus Christ. It should always separate you from those unbelievers around you. Make your speech salty. Make it different. Stand out. And lastly, that salty speech should lead you to be able to answer unbelievers individually and intentionally. Those people at your workplace, in the line at the grocery store, the waitress or waiter, maybe your friends at school, that could be the next person that God decides to call into his kingdom through you. And so you, you need to know how to answer each person. It's our call as believers. Be willing in, to answer each person individually. Be intentional with people that you come in contact with. Let's pray.